Um, we're going to pick up the story. Last week we ended with Ruth returning from gleaning in Boaz's field and finding protection and um, kindness from him and her explaining that to Naomi. And so this is where we pick it up. It's Ruth 3, 1 through 18. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may go well with you? Is not Boaz your relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after the young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, good morning. My name is Brandon Lutz. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, before we get rolling, as Jonathan mentioned, um, next week we are having our spaghetti fundraiser and silent des dessert auction fundraiser. Um, in July, the first week of July, July 1st through the 7th, we were taking 19 uh, people from our church to go down to uh, Tony and Amber and their four children. Um, we're taking 10 students, high school uh, and a couple college students in there, and then nine adults. Um, three of those, or three of those, nineteen are Bennetts, and three of those are Winfrey. So please pray for me. Um, so, but but we're gonna have a great time. We're going to to support the Ellswicks, to love on the Ellswicks well, um, to support what they're doing down down there, and and specifically, um, they they've assigned to us the um, I hope I say this right, Iglesia Batania. Uh, where's Amber? Is that right? All right, good. Um, and, and they are a church that's a lot like us. They're kind of like a, a mothership, a hub church that's trying to um, send out just other church plants throughout 
um, their church's life, their church's ministry. That's what they're making the heart of, of, of their church. And so we're trying to go down there to love them well, to love that church, support them, um, and just go down there. So that's in a little over a month. So next week, we're going to have our spaghetti uh, lunch fundraiser and silent dessert auction. So please come. Y'all have been generous the last two years we have done this. And so I would ask you to come and, and be even more generous because it's, it's a little more expensive to, to go on a mission trip than to send students to camp. So that's, that's next Sunday after church. Uh, please come and be a part of that. So we're in the middle of our sermon series on the book of Ruth that we have titled Crazy Love in a Crazy World. Another way of thinking about the title uh, is, is that a radical love, a, a love that is not of this world, is what this, broken world, is what this broken world needs. It's what we need. And so we've arrived today to chapter 3, which um, I have to say, outside of Song of Songs, it, it's one of the most scandalous passages of Scripture. Um, I just want to thank Drew and Jonathan for, for giving me this passage uh, to preach on. But I mean, you can, you can feel the, the sensuality as Vicki read this passage. And I'm sure some of you went back and read a few things over again. Wait, what? Did that just happen? And this is in the Bible? And this is okay? Um, so, so some of you may have been squirming in your seat. Some of you may have giggled a little bit. Some of you students, uh, maybe you blushed. Um, maybe some of the lyrics of a John Mayer song started playing in your mind as we were reading this passage. But in all seriousness, there's something very beautiful and again, a love that is not of this world that is going on in our text. When we read this chapter, many of us wonder, what, what really happened that night? I mean, would we even be allowed to watch a video scene of, of what actually took place between Boaz and Ruth that night? And Before we even dive into the text, I just want to take care of that question because we're all wondering it. No, nothing, nothing happened sexually or sinfully between Boaz and Ruth. Let's just answer that and let's just throw it off to the side. Uh, Ruth and Boaz are both individuals who are constantly loving others. They're putting their needs, their desires uh, way before their own. And, and they're both described as a righteous man and a woman um, throughout, this, throughout this book. So last week, um, Ted Sin came and spoke to some of the community group leaders. And he said that our, our tendency as Reformed folk, as Presbyterians, is to, to focus on the confusing, the obscure, the, th the things that don't seem to really make perfect sense to us that we find in Scripture... And we focus on those things. And if we do that, whether it's this chapter in chapter 3 of Ruth or in any other passage, we could very well miss what God is really trying to tell us, what God is really trying to open our hearts to in this passage. So with that in mind, let's dive into this passage. Let's see what God will reveal to our hearts today, just how, how holy and how glorious he is, how broken, how lost, and how messed up we are, and, and uh, how, how Jesus has come to heal the brokenhearted and give life to the dead. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace. Uh, this verse captures in many ways the heart of Ruth 3. So my hope this morning is that God will reveal to our hearts so we can boldly go to him, boldly go to God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We can open up our hearts to him, and only by doing that, only by going to him boldly and being vulnerable before him, can we find rest. Only by doing that will, be, will we be able to be at peace. So in your outline, you can see the three points for the sermon. The first point is called thoughtful boldness. And this point is mainly going to be about the plan that Naomi presents to Ruth. So Naomi tells Ruth that Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor tonight. So this is the place where they're finishing up the collecting and, and the, 
processing the harvest of the wheat for that season. She says, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. So moms, how many of you are telling your daughters to go find a man this way? Dads, how comfortable would you be with this plan? No? Yeah? What a bold and risky plan. I mean, to an outsider, to an outside observer, there's no difference between what Ruth is doing and what we would see a prostitute do. I mean, what could go wrong with this plan? Just about everything. Just about everything could go wrong with this plan. What if someone sees Ruth on her way or while she is waiting for everyone to fall asleep or on her walk home? It's hard for us to imagine, but, but all the fires and lights have been put out and it's very dark. You can't see much at night for them. What if Ruth approaches the wrong person? What if she lays down at the wrong guy's feet? What if Boaz isn't the man that we think he is, that the scriptures laid him out to be? He could have taken advantage of Ruth or he could have shamefully rejected her. At the first read or glance over this text, you might think this is the worst plan in the world. Naomi is not thinking. She, she's being dumb. She's being crazy. But Paul Miller suggests there is a massive amount of wisdom on Naomi's part with this plan. Naomi's boldness is not a quick or a thick-headed boldness. She has thought this through just about every detail, and this plan sets Ruth up for the greatest chance of success with what she's trying to do. Naomi's thoughtful boldness really does minimize all the what-ifs with this plan. So let me flush out some of the wisdom Naomi is using. She waits two months after arriving in Bethlehem before she presents this plan to Ruth. This allows Boaz more time to be attracted and fall for Ruth. It allows Boaz and Ruth to both get to know each other a little better. It also allows Ruth's reputation and character to grow. We see this later on when Ruth talks about, uh, excuse me, when Boaz talks about Ruth and says, all the townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. By going to Boaz at night instead of the day, it's quiet, it's private, which means that if this, if this plan doesn't work, if Boaz rejects her, then she has a way of retreating without shame. Naomi has Ruth wash, anoint, and put on a cloak. So think about when you're going on a date. Like, what do you do? You take a shower, you may put some cologne or perfume on, you're, you're trying to look put together, you're trying to make yourself uh, attractive to the person that you're going out with. You want to look good for this guy or for this girl, whether you're, you're dating, whether that's your husband or your wife. So Ruth cleans herself up and she puts on some perfume. That's what this means. But the putting on the cloak is, is very significant. That's a very tactful move on Ruth's part. Remember that Ruth along with Naomi, is also a widow. In this time period, you would dress and wear mourning clothes when, after you lost someone close to you, especially your husband. By removing her mourning outfit or her mourning attire and putting on a cloak, she is declaring she's moving on. She's done mourning the loss of her husband. So Naomi tells Ruth to wait until he is happy and on a full stomach and merry with drink. Wives, how many of you have, have talked to your husband at not this time period and gotten a good response from him? 
But after you feed him, maybe, or after he, he is at a couple drinks in, whatever it is, whenever he's in a good mood, you go and ask of him something that might be hard to do. What's his response going to be? He's probably going to be more willing, more accepting to do that. So lastly, Ruth is told to place herself at, at his feet so that Boaz will see when he looks for his blanket by his feet. So she's going to uncover his feet, and so she's going to lay by his feet so that way he gets cold. Um, she will see, he will see Ruth at his feet. So can you imagine how Boaz would have responded if, so we, this plan sounds really silly, but I'm still trying to flush this out. Um, can you imagine if, if Ruth would have laid kind of next to Boaz's face? I mean, what, what would Boaz have done if he woke up and there's someone like staring at him like in the face? What would you have done? I mean, he might have screamed. He might have punched her in the face. Who knows? I mean, but, but probably what would have happened is the plan shot before anyone says a word. A neglected aspect of love is on display here. Wisdom. And our, our culture puts falling in love front and center but forgets about thinking in love. Not Naomi. She thinks about how to make love happen. That's wisdom. Without wisdom, Naomi and Ruth's situation would remain frozen. Without wisdom, the boldness of Naomi's plan would have failed before Boaz and Ruth even got to talk with one another. Our culture has surrendered love to the world of feelings, and because of that, we often separate thinking and planning from love. I know a lot of you, um, you love and you've grown up, as I have, on Disney movies and the Disney Channel, but Disney very well might be the one to blame on this one, and they might take a good portion of that blame. The Disney Channel's model, the Disney model and example of falling in love is almost like magic or a spell. There's no need for thinking or having a real relationship. Cinderella. How well did Cinderella and Prince Charming know each other? They said how many words to each other and danced to one song and poof, they're in love. And they decide to get married because a shoe fits. Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, it's all the same. What Disney has claimed as falling in love sounds a lot more like lust than actually love. There's, a, there's not a lot of thinking going on, and there's not a lot of wisdom being used. And our hyperjudgmental culture is quick to call a plan like Naomi's manipulation or even seduction. But that's only because romanticism has hijacked the word love. When you buy a car or when you buy a, a house or you're starting a business, you present a plan to the bank or the investors. They want to make sure that you've, they, you've thought everything through and that they can think everything through. So why would marriage be any different? Why would you not think about marriage before going into it? The word boldness, bold or boldness occurs in the book of the Bible, one book of the Bible way more than any other book of the Bible. The book of Acts. They preached Jesus Christ with boldness. They spoke with boldness. They saw the boldness of Peter and John. They boldly declared the whole counsel of God. Paul boldly goes before the Jerusalem council. How is it possible? How is it possible that these men who had just abandoned Jesus in his most desperate time of need, how is it possible that the man who had been killing Christians are, are acting like this, that they can be so bold for Christ? You see, they had an unwavering confidence in the one that they were speaking boldly about. They had an unmoving boldness in who Jesus, were, who Jesus was, his word, and his promises. 
Naomi's boldness is, a direct, is directly connected to how Boaz has spoken and acted over the past two months leading up to this event in Ruth 3. It isn't a blind boldness. Naomi's boldness is attached to, to her. I mean, we have to, we have to see this because this is kind of the transition in the whole book. Naomi's boldness is attached to beginning to see God restore her, to provide for her, and to protect her. She's starting to see that God is for her. He always was, but he's, she's now starting to see it. She has prayed, and God is answering. She has asked, and God is giving. Uh, Rachel, my wife, and I, we met in college at the prestigious University of Central Florida. Uh, we had zero college students go there this year. I'm a little sad about that. Um, but Rachel and I, we met through RUF, uh, a campus ministry there. And, and now when I, when I met Rachel, I wouldn't call it love at first sight because that completely destroys everything I just said. Um, but, but I knew very well um, after being around with her that, that I was interested in her. And so only after a few weeks of knowing her... Uh, and what, what I mean by that, knowing her, is just being around her, not really talking to her um, in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I, I came up with this bold plan, I'm going to call it bold, um, to ask her out. And so before you all start thinking, man, that's a, that's a pretty dumb plan if you don't know her, um, I'd mentioned to a friend of mine that I was interested in Rachel. His first response was, well, you better step in line because there's about four or five guys who want to ask her out. I asked my friend Ben, um, well, have any of them asked her out yet? No, they're all a little too afraid. I was like, oh, all right, that's good. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the friend zone, um, but I wasn't going to get put in the friend zone by Rachel. So, so the next week after our RUF meeting, our group of friends, we went to Steak and Shake afterwards like we always do. And then <clears throat> when we all were about to leave and go into our cars, I, I approached Rachel and asked her if I could take her out on a date on Friday night. She said no. <laughs> and so, but I think you all know the answer to the next question because we're now married uh, with three children. So I said, what about Saturday night? She said no again. <laughs> yep, that was fun. <laughs> and as, as embarrassing as, as, as heart-crushing as that experience was, I was attempting to use wisdom. I wanted Rachel to know right away, where do I stand with you? What are, what are my intentions with you? I wanted her to know that I was interested in her than more than a friend, and I wanted to be the first guy to put himself out there with her, so I get all the advantages. There was some planning, there was some thinking, and, and I'm, I'm, I, I want to call it a wisdom that went along with my boldness. But the embarrassment and the heart-crushing experience of being rejected, and I know there's a ton of guys out there who know exactly what I'm talking about, um, was because my boldness also meant I was making myself vulnerable. Which leads us into the next point on courageous vulnerability as we look at Ruth in chapter 3. So Ruth is carrying out this plan. She goes down to the threshing floor just as Naomi had told her to. When Boaz falls asleep, she goes to him softly and uncovers his feet and lies down by his feet. At midnight, the man is startled and turns over and there's a woman lying at his feet. So Ruth has followed Naomi's plan perfectly up until this point. The next thing Ruth was commanded by Naomi to do was to wait and let Boaz tell, to tell you what to do. So what was the end of Naomi's plan? After you uncover his feet, just wait. He'll take care of everything else. Don't say a word. Just let him take over. Now, does Ruth follow this plan? No. 
She says, spread your wings over me, your servant, for you are a redeemer. She didn't follow Ruth's plan to let Boaz decide where this was going to go. She was bolder and more vulnerable. Spread your wings means to spread the corner of his garment over Ruth. Now, in ancient cultures, and you might have seen this in some um, older movies like Braveheart, uh, in some of these eastern cultures today, this was language, language and an action for a marriage proposal. Put your, your, your family cloth over me. That was another, similar to us like giving a ring to a woman. Ruth is making sure that her intentions, her, her reason for being there are crystal clear. I'm here because I want to marry you. I'm not going to let you try to interpret what I'm trying to do here. I'm just going to flat out tell you why I'm here. But not just marry her. Notice that Ruth calls Boaz a redeemer. Ruth is asking Boaz to help Naomi to bear a child that would be Naomi's heir. I believe Jerry Jonathan has mentioned this already, but Naomi is a relative of Boaz. So by Boaz accepting the marriage proposal of Ruth, he is bringing Naomi back into the family. He's bringing Naomi back into the city with a rightful standing, where she no longer will be a servant, but she will be um, one of them, part of Boaz's family. Also, this is going to allow Naomi's family line to continue through Boaz and Ruth, and we'll see later uh, what that means. So again, Ruth is making her own needs secondary to Naomi's again. We've seen this over and over again in this book, but it started with going to Bethlehem with Naomi. She didn't have to. Ruth said, go home. Your, your husband's dead. You're no longer really connected to me. You need to go figure out move on with your life. But no, she goes with Naomi. And then she goes and she works in the fields to help provide food, shelter, and protection so they can live, making sure. And now she is making sure that Naomi's family line is continued. And it, it is this, this not-of-this-world love that Ruth has for Naomi that, that three generations later will lead to David, the future anticipated king of God's people. And before we continue on in the text, let's look at all the reasons why, why Boaz very well could have rejected Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite, and he is an Israelite. Israelites weren't supposed to marry foreigners. We could talk about this for a long time, but we're not going to. But that's strike number one going for Ruth. Ruth is propositioning or proposing to a man something very well that could have offended Boaz, um, he, and he is a rich man, and, and she would be the one proposing. So that's strike two. I mean, women aren't supposed to do that. It's supposed to be the man's job to do that. She is poor. He is rich. All that Naomi and Ruth have is all due to the generosity and kindness of Boaz. They don't really have anything. They're servants. So Naomi calls herself a servant twice, as we see in the two sentences she speaks to Boaz. Strike three. Usually you're out at this point in baseball or softball, um, but the list keeps going. Boaz isn't just a rich man. He's a landowner. He's a very prominent figure in Bethlehem. And again, Ruth has nothing that's hers. She has nothing that she can claim as her own. He's an older man. She is a younger woman. Uh, because of their age difference, Boaz has little reason to expect that such a marriage would be accept acceptable to Ruth. He very well could be waiting. There's a part of Boaz that has he's been getting to know Ruth over these last couple months, that he could very well be waiting for, for Ruth to move towards him, to give him some kind of sign. She does that uh, in this passage. But if you can count it, that's like six or seven strikes. I mean, you're out at least twice by now. So when a man asks a woman for her hand in marriage, what does he say? Will you marry me? He asks. He, requ he requests. Does Ruth ask? Does, do, does Ruth ask Boaz this question? 
I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So is this a request or is this a command? We, don't, we might not see it as clearly in our text, but Ruth is actually commanding Boaz to marry her. You are going to marry me. All right, let's see how that works. So Ruth is completely blowing the stereotypes and the standards of women out of the water. She is bolder, she's more courageous, she's more vulnerable than Naomi even asked her to be. But this is completely in line with Ruth's character so far. Everything Ruth does is a function of her hesed, her, her kindness, and her generosity, and her not-of-this-world love for Naomi. And, and this, this is very significant. This struck me um, to the core. And if she isn't being vulnerable enough, let's take a look at one more significant aspect of her vulnerability. So she's risking her honor by lying at the feet of this man, alone and vulnerable, to restore Naomi's family line. But by going to an older man... She is almost assuring herself that she will be a widow again in the future. I mean, that, that's crazy. Becoming a widow or a widower has to be one of the hardest things to go through in this life. So who signs up for it twice? Who is Ruth's heart full of? Naomi. Who is your heart full of? My heart likes to be full of myself. So for us, to follow Jesus means to be vulnerable. Jesus called Abraham to leave his family, his land, everything they had known, to go to a place that I'll tell you where it's going to be in the future. He did the same thing to the disciples. Jesus tells us that if we want to be one of his own, then we have to take up our cross and follow him. We have to make ourselves vulnerable to the world and anything and everything this world can throw at us. To be bold for Christ means moving towards vulnerability. If you're not making yourself vulnerable in your life, then what does that say about your faith? Do you vulnerably open up your heart to others? Or do you keep your heart guarded and hidden away, locked up? How does your community group deal with vulnerability with one another? Does it look like the vulnerability we see Ruth exemplifying? Do you carry and share the burdens of one another? Do you, do you carry and share the joys of one another? I mean, this, this scares me, and I lead a community group, and I'm a pastor of this church. Do you vulnerably sacrifice your, your time, your money, your gifts, your energy uh, to Jesus and his mission and his vision for the world? I mean, our, our church is committed to church planning across our city, our country, and, and the world. What are you putting on, on the line in order to see this happen? What are you putting on the line to see God's kingdom come down to Winter Haven and Polk County and the entire world? What are you risking in order to make this happen? And if, if you're like me, if you're like me, then you're saying, yes, yes, I, I want to do this, but I'm, I'm just struggling to give you that last 10% or that last 20%. There's a part of me that wants to hold back because I like my stuff, I like my time, I like my energy, I like my comfort, I like doing whatever I want to do. And so we often ask the question to God, whether we realize this or not, how far do we have to go, Dad? How far do we have to go, Father? How far are we going to take this? How far is far enough? What can I get away with? And the Father's response to us 
The question is not how far, my sons and daughters. The question is, do you possess the depth of faith, the trust and hope in me to go as far as needed? Why don't we ask big things from God? Why don't we go boldly before the throne of grace? Why don't we completely open up our hearts to God? How come we, we're not vulnerable with our Father and with others? We only give them pieces and glimpses of our hearts. Why do we hide from doing things that would reveal the, the, the not of this world love that we've been called to reveal? All the different reasons and excuses we can come up with come down to two very specific things. One, we don't believe that God is who he says he is. We don't believe that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he's perfect, just, and love. Or two, we don't think that we're as far gone, we're as messed up, that we're as broken, as lost, as sinful, and as dead in our sins as we really are apart from Christ. We don't believe the truth of God. We don't believe the truth of ourselves. So when we open our eyes to the truth of God, our Father, when we open the eyes of the truth of our sinfulness, then and only then will we boldly and vulnerably live on this side of heaven. And we, and we will be able to do that because our hearts will be at rest. Because we'll be so confident in, in, the, in our Savior, in the one for us, our Father over us. Which brings us to the third and final point. So Ruth returns to Naomi and tells her everything that happens. And upon hearing what Boaz has said he will do and seeing the abundant gift of barley, something, something happens in this very moment that we can so easily miss. Naomi has the depth of faith. She has the trust in Boaz and ultimately in God that he is going to take care of them. There is a future peace and a rest on the horizon. She's beginning to see it. She's beginning to believe it. And we can see this in verse 18, the last verse in this chapter. Wait, my daughter. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. So not resting and finishing the matter today describes everything that Boaz does. When he encounters a need or a problem, he attacks it head on until it's solved. This is keeping in line with his character and it's keeping in line of God's character as well. So what does Ruth have to do? Nothing. Now she has to do nothing. What does Naomi have to do? Nothing. They are momentarily waiting because Boaz will not rest until he gives them rest. Rest has been the thing that Naomi and Ruth have been seeking throughout the book of Ruth. In chapter 1, Naomi blessed Ruth and Orpah asking that God would give them rest. In chapter 2, Ruth has not rested while getting food for Naomi. In chapter 3, Naomi said that she was going to seek a rest for Ruth. So now the rest that Naomi prayed for in chapter 1, she is thoughtfully and boldly seeking for Ruth. Naomi is answering her own prayers. Boaz is answering Naomi's prayers. So let's take a closer look at Boaz's response to Ruth's boldness and vulnerability. Boaz commends her. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. The word kindness here is actually hesed that we've been seeing over and over again in the book of Ruth. A fair translation is, this time, Ruth, you've outdone yourself. When he says you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich, he is suggesting that Ruth has put love for Naomi ahead of pursuit for a beauty and strength for a younger man, for status and wealth. He implies that Ruth has chosen him even though she could have picked just about any other single guy in Bethlehem. 
Boaz calls Ruth a, a worthy woman. The phrase worthy woman appears only one other place in Scripture. Proverbs 31. The famous Proverbs describing a godly woman. No other woman in the entire Bible is called this. Just Ruth. And what is Boaz's response? He's thrilled. He's ecstatic. His heart is full of joy. He has fallen for this woman. He joyfully accepts the marriage proposal of Ruth. And he continues to show her a not-of-this-world love. He tells her to not be afraid. He commends her. He compliments her. Tells her that she is a catch. Everybody in the city knows this. And he loves that Ruth is constantly putting Naomi ahead of herself. And this is just a great illustration of God's love and joy for us. And here's where our hearts fail us yet again. We don't believe that God is thrilled, ecstatic, and head over heels for us. We don't believe that. Especially when we're struggling with sin or falling into sin. We believe the lie that God begrudgingly takes us back. That he's secretly keeping some kind of list of the wrongs we have done. Ultimately, we believe that Christ's death isn't enough. Luke 12, 32 tells us that it is the joy of the Father to give us his kingdom. Jesus is flattered and thrilled when we go to him and ask of him things. We compliment our Father and we ask great things of him. He wants us to go to him and ask of these things. The younger son in the famous parable of the prodigal sons, he had it all wrong with his plan to return to the Father. Remember, the father completely dismisses, ignores, whatever you want to call it, the younger son's plan to be restored and brought back into the family. But instead, the father's filled with joy over his son that has returned home. The father wants us to boldly and vulnerably approach his throne of grace, and he delights and finds joy in showing us mercy and grace. He is filled with joy to reveal to us his not-of-this-world love for us. Boaz sends Ruth back to Naomi, uh, making sure she is not empty-handed. Boaz is reflecting back to Naomi's lament in the beginning of the book that God has made her empty. Not only is it a symbol of his commitment to take care of them and marry Ruth, but also he wants to encourage Naomi's faith in the good shepherd. Boaz empties himself and does not rest so that Naomi and Ruth will be overflowing with goodness and so that they can rest. And this is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ emptied himself. He boldly and vulnerably left his seat in the throne of heaven, left the very presence of his Father and the Holy Spirit. He leaves his community to become the servant for sinners. He came into our world and he didn't rest. And we see this throughout his life. He, he constantly longs to rest, but he constantly does not rest so that he can give others rest. And even now, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, not resting, but is instead mediating on our behalf so that we can have a right standing and a relationship with God. The true and final Redeemer willingly did everything necessary for the redemption of his bride, the church. Hebrews 12, 12, For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. I mean, do you believe that? Does your heart believe that, that he goes to the cross joyfully? He joyfully emptied himself. He joyfully didn't rest so that you and I could be filled and find rest. It was his not-of-this-world love, his crazy love for us as to why Jesus went through everything that he did for us. 
So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We're going to sing that in just a minute. Let us boldly live our lives for something far greater and bigger than ourselves. Let us put it all on the line and be willing to be vulnerable with one another, with God, with the city that he has called us to, with the world that he has called us to. And when we do this, when we do this, God's word guarantees and assures us that then, and only then, we will enter his rest. Because he is not rested, he is not resting, and he will not rest until, until he comes back and makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, we find it, I know I find it so hard to rest, uh, so hard to, to trust in you, your word and your promises over us. Father, we lack boldness, and our boldness is foolish. We hide our hearts away from God and others. Much of this is because of, of our unbelief of who you are and our unbelief of who we are. Father, a lot of this has to do is that we don't, we don't believe that you really are joyful over us. We don't believe that you're as infatuated with us as you really are. Even now, would you just make us more aware of your not-of-this-world love for us? Would you fill our hearts and our lives with, with the joy that you have over us? Thank you for not resting so that we can find our rest in you. Give us the ability to live in and through your joy over us and for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, just a quick reminder uh, for the spaghetti fundraiser and silent dessert auction next week. If you want to make a dessert and donate that, please come talk to me or call me this week. Um, we can go boldly before the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done for us. And, and we can go boldly, I mean, we can go boldly because the, it, it, it brought the Father such joy, such fulfillment, such excitement um, that he got to, to show us this kind of love. He wants us to come boldly before him. And so come boldly before him so we can go boldly out there into this city and into this world and live for him. So please receive the Lord's benediction and promise over us as we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. Oops, said it wrong. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you both now and give you peace. Both now and forevermore. Amen.